Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke AF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, recording not so live from the Brooklyn Solarium. Folks, I'm really excited to bring you this conversation today with the innovation director of an organization called Impact Justice. Aishatu Youssef is a person who has been working for the last several years of her career, but since the founding of Impact Justice in 2015, on reimagining what our criminal justice system should and can look like. In the conversation, we get into all of the ways in which, you know, society has honestly been built up to dehumanize people, right? There are systems, right, that are at play that force people into making unthinkable choices because they feel like they don't have any other choices to make. And what does it mean in a society that is supposed to be industrialized, that is supposed to house the land of the free? And when we look at how we treat these folks that are incarcerated, right? I don't think that because you commit a crime that you should lose your humanity. But that's exactly what has been happening in our criminal justice system ever since its inception. You know, I've often said on Woke AF that the criminal justice system isn't broken. It's working exactly the way that it was intended to work. It is locking up black and brown people, right? You, If you watched uh, Ava DuVernay's 13th Amendment, you learned all about the ways in which this system was created to create another mechanism for forced labor, right? Like we hear stories every summer that there are fires in California raging across the state. We learn about the fact that there are fires firefighters who are actually uh, incarcerated that aren't even being paid a dollar a day to literally fight deadly fires. But then when those same people get out of prison, they wouldn't be able to go and get a job as a firefighter, even though that is exactly what they were doing while they were in prison. So what does it mean that we set up these systems 
right? That are not about rehabilitation. They are not about accountability, but instead they are steeped in punishment. And I've been thinking about this a lot since the conversation I had with Aisha too, because the reality is, is in America, we believe deeply in punishment. It's actually one of our like foundations, right? If, what do you think that the laws right now that are crumbling all around us with regard to a woman's right to an abortion or a person with a uterus's right to an abortion, what do you think that that is about? That is about punishing women, right? For having the audacity to want to have autonomy over their bodies, right? For being able to say that, you know what, we are over 50% of the population and we get a say on when, where, and if we decide to have children. But then you had lawmakers, particularly, obviously, Republican lawmakers who were putting into practice a couple of years ago, transvaginal ultrasounds before women go and get an abortion. Well, when you ask the medical doctors, are trans, are transvaginal, um, ultrasounds necessary, right? They told, no, there is actually no medical use for that before we were to administer an abortion. But the point of it was humiliation. The point of it was harm, right? And so when we hear stories ever infrequently, particularly during COVID in, in, uh, in 2020, I was wondering when we're talking about social distancing and wearing masks, we were looking to the, looking to the prison system to ramp up the production of masks to ramp up the production of hand sanitizer and other metrics of cleanings. And guess what? Those same prisoners that were working for no money to produce and keep the country safe weren't allowed to use the hand sanitizer or the mass. But we didn't hear about massive COVID outbreaks in these facilities because we don't give a fuck. Like that's the reality is that in America, I recognize that we are a country that really is a bunch of fucking ostriches that want to bury our heads in the sand. You see, we want to say that we lock up the bad people and we throw away the key, except we get to pick and choose who is bad and who is good, who is worth rehabilitating and who isn't. Who, when we were listening to the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and everybody's talking about that motherfucker's future, I don't ever remember hearing anybody talk about what about Trayvon Martin's future? What about Tamir Rice's future, right? When it's black and brown people that are the victims, we don't get to have our humanity front and center. And so one of the questions that I ask Aisha to is, how is it that you humanize the incarcerated when free black and brown people are not able to experience the fullness of their humanity because we're being looked at through the white gaze and filter, right? We're out here marching and screaming on the top of our lungs that black lives matter because they fucking don't. And so it's, you know, to be in a, in a job, uh, that is about humanizing those that we choose to see as animals. And what I find really just frustrating is that we spend more money, more money, keeping people locked up, keeping people in violent dysfunction than we do on our education system, 
right? One of the things that Aisha too will talk about is the food in prisons, right? Forcing people to eat food that is literally labeled not for human consumption, but because we are telling these people and reinforcing every single day, every hour of every day that they are worthless. What do we think is going to happen when they're released? Because then we put them into a situation where not only have we finally gotten to a place to ban the fucking box so that people can actually re-enter society, but what is it that we think that they are re-entering society with? It is not a better sense of self. It is not a sense of accountability. It is not a sense that I want to be a part of this society. It's that I have had pain and violence inflicted on me for however many months or years. And now I have even more internalized trauma that I'm going to act out. Like it's not rocket science. Why there is such high recidivism rates. Because we don't create a system that views everyone equally, that says that people are worthy just by virtue of being fucking human. We spend so much energy trying to change systems that are working exactly the way that they should. But one of the things that Aisha too will say as well is that, you know, she is not cynical, is that she cannot afford cynicism in this job because she wouldn't be able to do it. And it got me to thinking, right? Because I refer to myself as a cynic. I say that I'm probably one of the most hopeless people. And somebody had said to me the other day too, they're like, Danielle, you're not. Because if you were, you wouldn't do this show. If you were, you wouldn't get so enraged every single day. You get enraged and frustrated, right? And you're filled with this type of passion because you want to see better. You want people to be better. And you believe that they can if given enough information. And one of the things that she says is the same, that we have to believe that we can be better. We have to believe that we can do better because if we think that this is it, right? That this is as good as it gets, then we are fucking future generations. You know, one of the things that I will end on in our interview is this, that those that were formerly enslaved, right? Believed in a better day. They prayed for a better day. They fought for a better day. They fought for a freedom that many of them knew that they would never see, that they would never experience, but they did so anyway. And that is something that I need to remind myself of on a daily basis. And I want to remind all of you that yes, the times that we are totally living in right now, absolutely and 100% feel eternally fucked. And it may be for quite some time, but just because we may not experience, right, the equity that we are fighting for each and every day doesn't mean that it is not worth fighting for. And that is the reminder that I got in my interview coming up next with Aishatu Youssef of Impact Justice. Folks, I am very happy to welcome to Woke AF for the very first time, hopefully not the last time, Aishatu Youssef, who is the Director of Innovative Programs at Impact Justice. And Impact Justice, folks, is a national innovation and research center advancing new ideas and solutions for justice reform, which, as we talk about on Woke AF, is desperately needed. Um, Aishatu, thank you so much um, for joining. And, you know, this must be 
uh, a really precarious time to be in uh, the work of justice reform and kind of reimagining uh, what an actual uh, just system would look like. Can you talk to us, just give us a, a, a better picture of impact justice and the work that you all have been doing since the inception uh, in 2015? Yeah, so I'm super excited to be uh, here as well. I'm clearly a fan uh, and I uh, didn't think I'd get a chance to do this. So I'm super excited to speak with you. Um, yep, so I'm Aisha Toom, the Director of Innovation Programs. And, you know, what's interesting, I've, we've gotten a lot of asks around, what's it like to be in the justice system now mm. that everyone's talking about it, you know? And what I think is really interesting and not that much has changed for us aside the fact that people want to actually listen to us sometimes now, <laughs> right? The, you know, <laughs> you know, I think that, you know, what's real is that, you know, I've been, I've been in, to most of my career, I've been in justice work. Um, and the folks that are really in the trenches, both on the advocacy research side, have been in doing this work for a long time. Um, a lot of it silently or a lot of it like beating down doors. And so I think what has changed the last few years is that people um, actually... Well, people that have like a moral compass that, <laughs> that want to yes. actually talk about it are, are more are more interested in hearing about what it is we've been screaming about for a really long time. Um, and so Impact Justice has been around for six years. Um, although we have ever, most people in that organization have been doing this work for a really long time. Um, we are a research and innovation organization, right? Research is what we say a proxy for knowledge. Um, and innovation is really about risk and imagination and possibility. And because we work in such an antiquated system, both of those things are highly necessary. What's unfortunate is that our risk and possibility because the way a system is set up is, is around people. Right. But at the same time, we have to be able to think differently about how do we really impact the justice system. At Impact Justice, we think about that in kind of four distinct ways, which is uh, diversion, which means how do we keep people out of the system? There's a huge mm -hmm. conversation that's been happening nationally around uh, the reduction of mass incarceration. That is actually a bipartisan conversation in a lot of ways. But the way we really hit to mass incarceration is by keeping people out from the very beginning. We do that by diversion, um, a lot of restorative justice practices, things like that. Um, the second piece we think about is uh, what the term is called conditions of confinement. I hate the term, but that's the term folks use. And that's really thinking about what's happening to people while they are inside. Uh, which is, what is unfortunate is that oftentimes in our system, when you lock the key and throw it away and throw them inside and they're like, they're in there. Yep. But what's real is that they are humans, they are people, and they will get out, right? 98% of people that are incarcerated get out. So if we aren't providing both dignity, respect, and care for them while they're in there, the person that comes out is probably not the person you want to be your neighbor because you torture them and cause intense trauma. So a lot of the work mm. we do is around conditions of confinement, from sexual assault, the food that they eat, things like that. Um, the third piece we do is about re-entry, which is right, the folks that 98% uh, of folks that go in will come out. Um, so one of the work, uh, kind of the two pillars that we really focus on is really around how do you provide the necessary resources to provide people with the things that they need upon re-entry, housing, a job, um, um, navigation, and that's both juvenile and adult um, because both those folks are the folks coming out we want to adhere to that. And then all of that, as we said, um, I said, uh, is uh, was rooted in research, which is a proxy for knowledge. Everything we do is not just evidence-based practice, but also we use uh, participatory research, which means we actually talk to the people that are uh, that we're talking about that were impacted by the system to actually help build our programs out to make them uh, adhere to what it is their needs are um so i i so at so at impact justice we do all that we've done that for the last six years most of us had done that for much longer but you know the truth is is given the kind of rise and even from you know george floyd and brianna taylor yep. and all of those yep. things you know what ended up happening was um the stuff that we did every single day people wanted to hear about more 
Um, and that was in a lot of ways great, right? Because people were interested in hearing about the atrocities that are happening to uh, particularly black communities, particularly native communities and brown communities, right? And so it just gave rise to people actually wanting to listen to what we want to say. Uh, it doesn't mean that the people actually... Um, heard it differently. It <laughs> doesn't also mean that <laughs> right. it also doesn't mean that like, you know, more dollars came to support organizations like ours in some cases, but not always. Um, and it doesn't mean that we, you know, that we have a easier time changing policies and laws because they are policies and laws. But but what it does mean is that we get to have the voice of the people that are impacted um a little bit louder. And it also did mean that um more people were um alerted to the issues that impact brown and black and poor communities, which I think is the biggest difference. What I saw almost instantly were people that work in completely different fields who don't have to do, who don't, well, they don't know they do, but often don't know that they know someone that's been incarcerated, right. uh, don't mm -hmm. live in poor communities, right? Being like, wait, what's going on? You know, tell me about that, you know? And so I think that process and that um, outcome is a good outcome, a terrible reason to have that outcome, but it was a good outcome that we got to bring people into the conversation that uh, didn't care before and didn't know to care. You know, I want to talk about, um, you know, thank you so much for, for giving that rundown, because I think that it's, it's, it's really exciting work that you are doing, because I, I don't oftentimes think that we have an opportunity to really truly reimagine, right? It's just kind of, you know, it, it is the, it is the status quo, so we'll just kind of stick with what is, um, and not imagine that there could be something that is different. The the part that sticks out for me um, is the condition of confinement, and the reason why that sticks out for me is because, first of all. I mean, we, I don't need to go into the history of how black and brown people are looked at in this country in general, right? It is, you know, the opportunity has always been lock them up, throw away the key, force labor, you know, force birth, whatever, whatever it is. Um, it is, it has, the fight has always been about the humanization of black people, right? And so when you think about who is actually incarcerated in mass, it is black and brown men, right? And on the rise is, is, is women as well. And it's hard. I, 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 the question that I have for you is how is it that you, how do you work to humanize those that are incarcerated when we are having such a goddamn problem with trying to humanize those of us that are outside of bars, right? And so it's so to me, it's like you, the you can justify the 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 animalistic treatment because you believe those people to be animals from the jump, right? And so it's like how how do you how do you do that work? How do you go about um, doing that work and and having people understand that to your point, ninety eight percent of people who are incarcerated will in fact be released. What are they being released as, right? Yeah, um, uh, uh, that question is packed with a lot of stuff. So I'm, I'm going to talk for a whole. I'm, I'm going to forgive me. I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a chunk. <laughs> Go. You know, what I think is what what I think is important at the, at the end of your statement, which was around like right, when you animalize people and you right, it's mm -hmm. easier to it's easier to, to do that. You know, it's it's not just the fact that we've decided that black and brown and poor people are animals. It's that we don't know them. We don't care to know them. And then we literally put them, make them invisible, right? That's what yep. incarceration does, right? And it's been, and it's been, and it's done from the beginning of time. I actually was listening to one of your 
um, sessions that you did a couple of days ago that actually you said in there, um, right? Like, let's get back to what they're, let's get back to what the justice system was supposed to do, right? Mm-hmm. But the truth is, there is no, that, but it's doing what it's supposed to do. It was <laughs> yeah, right. always meant, right. right? It was always meant to isolate um, individuals. And prior to, like, I mean, uh, you know, like incarceration, some ways have been around for a really long time, right? Before enslavement happened, they were like, isolating white people, right? That's what they were doing, right? It's just that when enslavement happened and colonization happened, it became poor people, which were black people and fill in the blank, all that. And so what I think is important to just differentiate in there is that it's not just that we see um, people that have committed crimes or poor people or black people as animals or as not human, but that we don't want that, but that society doesn't want to see them unless you, unless they're seen in the gaze of whiteness. And they also put the, the, the reason in the, the, the system of, uh, of uh, isolation exists is because they don't even, they, they throw them away. They're like, you didn't meet the society standard. I actually don't want to see you. You don't exist to me. And that makes it easy, right? That, like, mm-hmm. when I, that makes it easy to think about people as bad because I don't have to see them. I don't have to know them. Um, but I'm going to go, that was the end. I'm going to go back to the beginning yep. of your kind of question. So I am super lucky in that in my title is innovation, right? Which means I get to think differently about how we impact our system. So what, here's a couple truths is that the justice system or the legal system is what we call it, um, um, is antiquated, right? It is rooted in every system of harm that could ever exist from sexism to racism, to xenophobia, right? To, um, uh, you know, that every system of harm is what the system is rooted in, right? Even before we had words like xenophobia, right? It was rooted in, in anti-immigration. Even before we had mm-hmm. the, the titles of LGBTQI people, it was rooted in anti-gayness, right? It was it rooted in all these things. And so it just acts it out in different ways now. And so when you really think about changing policies and laws, I stand strong and support all of those lawmakers and lobbyists that are working to change a lot of policies for that because we need that. At the same time, what also with some of the work that we do, right, is that while that's happening and we support that and do all this, we can also create programming that actually can change the outcome for people, why these things are happening simultaneously, right? And so for as an example, like right, right now there's a lot happening in the California legislature that's around housing and housing formerly incarcerated people. So why y'all figure that out and why you use our work and we do all that to help the policy change, we've created a program that houses formerly incarcerated people in community homes, right? So these things can happen simultaneously. And we do that in many of our innovative projects, because I think what's important is, you know, this laws take a long time to change. Policy takes a long time to change. Uh, and as that happens, there is other things that we can be doing, which is creating programs to see the dignity of people. Um, so conditions of confinement to get into your big question around that. Right. Yeah. So, right. There's a there's a there's a status quo benefit by throwing somebody in a cell mm-hmm. and saying, like, you're done, you committed a crime. But what I think is really important to be clear about. Right. Is why this is easy is because people want to ignore the systemic processes of this. Right. Most people that committed crimes didn't just like wake up one morning and be like, going to rob that bank. That's not what happened. Right. It's because they are reared in communities that have violence in them. Right. These communities are violent typically because they lack resources. Right. And not just like resources today. I'm like going back to enslavement resources. Right. Resources to education, resources to um, uh, to jobs, resources to mental health care, all of these things that without them lead to what we see today. And so. Right. And so when we start talking about people that are incarcerated, you have to see the entire human for you to really understand what happened. And that is why the status quo doesn't like to see the entire human. Right. They like Mm -hmm. to see like, oh, there goes someone who committed a crime. Um, And and, and this is not to admit this is not to um, say that the crime they committed is any, you know, I was throwing the blank crime is not any less uh, 
um, important or impactful. Like it was harm, right? It was harm to somebody. But in order to understand how you both, right, do what the justice system says, which is around rehabilitation, the way you have rehabilitate somebody is talk is dealing with the whole person. And if they're in a system where sexual violence is rampant, right, and that's for both people that identify as male and female and identify as other genders, right, rampant. How the heck do you think that they're going to come out a healed, rehabilitated person if they were literally in fear for their lives? And that is. And that is not, and I'm not, and I'm talking, I'm not just talking about the people that are incarcerated, right? They're in fear for their lives based upon the people that are in charge of prisons, right? This isn't just like their fellow inmates that are talking about this. Like these are the people, they, harm is created, is given, is um, put upon them from the people that are running these institutions, right? And so if we're not talking about that, then how are we going to get to actually what their actual crime was, right? When we think about what we feed people, right? Every single day of your life, you get to choose the meal you eat. And you grew up in a society in which they told you all about the pyramid, told you all about what you should and should not eat and how it impacts your body, your health, and your choices, right? Why is that same conversation not part of the incarceral system? When we feed people terrible food, we expect them to act differently and to be differently, right? What's important to think about also, most people that are incarcerated, right? They come from marginalized communities, right? So what they, so they go in with a set of circumstances. They go in with a lot of trauma, typically sexual abuse, especially for women, sexual abuse is rampant, drug abuse, um, food apartheid, um, food deserts, like they go in with these. Mm-hmm. Then they go into prison and they experience these same things in there. I mean, we released a report um, actually uh, about a year ago today um, regarding food in prison, right? The state of food was the first national report on the state of food in prison. It wasn't rocket science, right? Turns out it's really bad. But what it did do is it really brought to surface about like people in prison told us that they were forced to eat food that said not fit for human consumption. So if you lock me in a cage, right, you have taken away my dignity and then you see, you serve me food that says not fit for human consumption. How do you want to think I'm going to act while I'm incarcerated? And then how do you think I'm going to act when I get out? And not only did you, you fed me that though. So when you get out and you have hypertension and you have all of these diseases that now become issues of the state and the county and our community, Mm. right? You blame the individual. You're like, you, you're unhealthy, right? And you're like, hold up. (laughs) You, I was reared in a community that didn't have healthy food. I was placed into a carceral system that didn't have healthy food. And now you want me to get out X amount of years later and all of a sudden be like the, the, the pivotal health. How does that happen? It, it, I guess that's not logical sense. It, it, you know, it's like the breakdown that you provide is so like clear, right? Like it, it's like X times Y equals Z. Like this is how this continued this cycle. And it's like, and what you said, I mean, you said so many things, but it's like, I'm thinking about a system that is created on punishment versus rehabilitation, right? We want to refer to prisons as like these rehabilitation centers, but they're not right. We're actually not trying to heal or fix what's broken. The system is set up to have punishment to make things so bad that then what you decide, oh, I'm never going to commit a crime again because I don't want to go back there. But we're not creating a system and an environment that is uh, building whole people and then putting them back into environments that they can actually thrive in. Like the, the, the goal is not to have thriving human beings. I mean, and I could say the same thing about, you know, our education system, which I have railed against for so many years as well. You want to talk about food, right? It was one of the reasons why Michelle Obama's like, let's get out, you know, let's go outside 
Let's do all these things. Let's change what we are feeding children because we're allowing corporations to put pink slime into the meat and say that it's okay that only 50% of the meat is what is actual meat. And then we expect kids to learn. So it's like you take people that have come from violent situations, you put them into a hellish, more violent situation and then feed them bullshit and then turn around and expect them not to go back and to commit more violence, acting out what it was that was committed to them. I, it, I feel crazy having just said that. Um, I should do like, in all honesty, how do you, if we were, which is your job to innovate and to create a legal system that was human focused, what does that look like? And what is it like, what, what, what does it look like to have a human carceral system where regardless of if you've committed crimes or not, we recognize your humanity. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to, one of the things you said that I think is really important is the way we talk about the the legal system is around this idea of punishment and accountability. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And what I, and people Mm -hmm. confuse these things all the time, right. People have confused the idea that prison means accountability, which, which I, which I often say is, how does that work? Like you can commit murder, go to prison for 50 years and still be okay with that crime you just committed. That doesn't mean you're accountable for it. It just means that you threw them in a system. Like that, that means nothing. Like when you're, you know, I have a little niece, when my niece lies, she's 11, when she lies and she's in trouble for that, she's probably going to lie again because I, if I, I'm her aunt, so I don't do that much. I don't do very much punishment. (laughs) I do a lot of like, that was not nice. Right. right. And because of that, right, oftentimes she does a similar thing because she wasn't accountable. I was just like, you right. shouldn't do that. I took your toy. Right. And so like I think there's this, this this confusion around punishment and accountability. There is no data to support that if I punish people hard, then they won't do a crime. And mm. There's quite a bit of data that actually exists that actually incarceration is not a deterrent for, from crime. Right. And I don't even have the quote you data on it because you can see it. Right. If prison was a deterrent, if jail was a deterrent, we probably wouldn't see rising crime levels right now. But we do. Right. Right. And that is because our communities are not set up to support people that are to that support people that are engaging in crime. Right. Period. Like, well, there's a there's a conversation around survival crimes. Right. And that's around people that are literally surviving and oftentimes are committing crimes for that survival. Right. So I think there's like a bigger conversation that has to be had around, like, what is our goal? Uh, You know, at, um, at Impact Justice, we talk a lot about. Um, around around prosecution, right? Like who's, and there's a, there's a bigger conversation that's been happening in the, in in the prosecution world around um, fair and just prosecution and more, uh, and, and deeper conversations. And that's because, right, there's a lot of subjectivity that happens between judges and prosecutors, right? And oftentimes, because like the win from prosecutors is like, oh, we got them locked up for years, you know, that was the win, right? But now there's deeper conversations around, okay, so who's to say that five years is different than three days, different than six months? Like, who's to, who provides that data? Who's to say that? So how are we actually saying people are accountable for their behavior? Which is, gets me to this conversation that we do a lot about our work is our, restor- our restorative justice diversion team. Um, and that is really the way in which we think about how do we actually have a different conversation on punishment and accountability, right? If my desire for you is you have committed harm against a person or a community, but my desire is for you is to one, understand the implications of your harm, to be accountable for your harm, and work on a method and a track process that will keep you from doing that again and that you can teach other people in your community why that is not okay 
at the same time, another part of this is how do we provide the resources for you to ensure that why you committed the crime or why, what, what happened in your community that allowed for this to happen is also being mitigated on this side, right? And so that is where, you know, people always say impact justice, we do a whole lot of stuff and we do. And part of that is because we see this as a continuum, right? It's not just about conditions of confinement. It's not just about diversion. It's about all of it. It's about reentry. It's about policy. It's about all of these things that really go to change a system. And so, you know, to get to your ultimate question, which is around like, what could the system be like? Do we just like throw it out? Do we just throw it away and right. start again? All these things, right? Like clearly if I was like, let's throw it away, that would like, would love to do that. The only issue with that, right, is I happen to not be the status quo. <laughs> I happen to not be look like, I happen to not look like the people that decision make because many of my colleagues, not just that impact justice, but across this nation that do this amazing work, don't always look, like often are not the people that are called upon to change systems. And so mm-hmm. if I say throw it away, right, there's a fear, right? There's that real fear around like, but who gets to make laws? Like we look at Congress right now. I don't want Mitch McConnell making out a single new law Come on. for me. <laughs> right? So, you know, and so you have to even, and even, I mean, not even just that deep. We deal with moderates. We deal with liberals who still don't even understand what we're talking about, right? And so I think what is true is that there has to be a concerted effort to both understand who we are talking about what the actual systematic issues are that led to where we are today. And then how do we start to have actual processes that change that? The way you do that is one, a huge piece of that is research. And honestly, some of the reasons why we actually get to have these conversations now are because researchers got in there and said, here are the numbers that you're hiding or lying about. Here are the people, right? Here's a face with that number. And it just so happens that all those faces look real similar, right? All them faces turn out look real brown. All those faces turn out look really, you know, and so when you start to pull data out, then once we have a data and we can say like, this is what this looks like, we can say here, we, you know, we, we can bring it up. This, this is why people are incarcerated. This is where they came from. This is who they are. Then we can start to chip away at that, right? And so some of the programs that we do, right, like one of our programs called the um, California Justice Leaders Project, which is a project in which we, it's an AmeriCorps project that we hire formerly incarcerated young people and they operate as navigators to young people that are currently in the system and will be leaving within the next six months. And so it's called the credible messenger model. So like the person that experienced it is the most credible person to actually walk somebody through that process. And the reason we have that model, right, is because again, like what I can say or somebody else can say that wasn't incarcerated as a young person is very different than a person that's incarcerated. Um, And so, and because we talked about how important reentry is, right, we have them walk them through the path. What are the things you need? How am I going to, how are you going to be set up to change your, to change your friend groups? What, what is that you need to go back to school? What are these things? They start to help them walk through that process. Um, but one of those things that the reason I'm bringing that up is because that's something that will change the outcomes for young people. Right. Yes. Because not only for the, you know, our actual, we call our members, our actual California justice leaders, they were incarcerated at some point in their life through our program. We have now given them a job. We are now giving them job skills. We are giving them mentors. We are giving them the ability to give back. We are giving them resume builders and we are giving them connection to an entire network of people that they didn't have before. That is a key component of how we keep them out of the system, right? Because now they have something to work with. They're like, I have a resume. I know I can do this job. I actually know I can do something differently, which is a huge part of this conversation is knowing you can be different knowing you can choose differently. And that once people know that, right, that goes back to like psychology 101, right? Like once you know and understand there can be a different path for you, it's up to us, right? Us as in the people that do this work, but our policymakers, our advocates, our corporate America that's giving money out, all these people to actually provide processes to do something different. And so 
when I think about what a system could and should look like, I think about a system that's really built on healing and accountability. Yes. Right. Because yep. if we don't get to healing, we get to nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. If we don't talk about what's happening internally with your body, with your mind, why you did it, we, we still have nothing at the end of the day. Like uh, one of the projects we're doing, I'm jumping around, but one of the projects we're doing on our research team is called um, is men in trauma. Um, and that is because right there is a conversation that happened a little more broadly around trauma, particularly around sexual assault for women. But we don't often talk about people that are incarcerated, men that are incarcerated and the trauma that they experience, which led to both their actions and outcomes. Um, and so this project is really around, right, if we could understand the trauma, then we could actually adhere to the healing of it. We could adhere to the healing of it, we can get to the accountability piece of it. We can get to the accountability piece of it, we can create processes that keep people from committing um, these crimes in the first place, but also going forward. I talked a lot. I'll stop. You know, <laughs> no, um, you know I, I love this so much, and I love the work that you all are doing so much, because the fact is that we are we are broken and we we are a morally bankrupt and broken society and the fact is that we can clearly look at people from very young ages based on their zip codes and say you're worthy and you are not and when you decide to center people's humanity and center their healing right then you can build programs and systems that are about uh, creating a supportive uh, ecosystem around them. Because what, what, I mean, when you mentioned, you know, a little bit back about survival crimes, right. And the way in which we view like, wait, why is somebody in a position where they are breaking the law? There are of of course people that want to break the law because they want to break the law. There are other people that are like, We are faced with no other choice. There is no other option. It's either I do this or my family doesn't eat. Either I do this or I'm sleeping, you know, under a bridge, right? Like there are things, there there are situations that are created, right? That for some people, when especially when you just said, knowing that you can be different, knowing that there are other choices that you can make. But when we are living in a society that doesn't, create and imagine choices for people and doesn't want other certain communities to have choices, this is where we end up. And I think that, you know, to the point that you made about earlier about, we just, we don't want to see things, right? We actually don't want to see things just like we don't want to see the crumbling of our current democracy. We just, we want things to just run like well-oiled machines so that I can put my attention elsewhere And the reality is, is that we are paying more money in the taxes that come out of all of our hard earning, right, to support a prison industrial system that then turns around and does us harm, right? Like does us who has never been in the system harm, right? And so I just, you know, to me, it's like every single problem that I talk about on this show comes back to humanizing people comes back to just recognizing that people are worthy, right? And that no one person should have the opportunity or the power to be able to dictate somebody else's humanity. And, you know, and I, to me, that, that is what comes out about the center, like the foundation of, of the work that you all are doing at Impact Justice. The last question um, that, I, that I have for you is, do you feel, and this is a question that I ask a ton of people, um, because I'm probably one of the biggest cynics in the world. Um, but do you feel, um, I should do like, 
hopefulness in the fact that more people's eyes are open to just how unjust the legal system is, that because of these high profile cases that have been followed and people are clearly seeing now, like, wow, there's a real stark difference between how Kyle Rittenhouse was talked about versus Trayvon Martin, who was an actual victim, right? Like, do you, do you feel hopeful? Yeah. So, um, I think one of the important things that you said that I just want to address address partially is, you know, are there people in the world that just commit crimes? Yes. That have mental health challenges that commit crimes. Yes. Most people that commit crimes are doing so on a broad scale of survival crimes, right? Like even if, like when you're thinking about like the community, there are actual tangible survival crimes, right? Like I robbed a store so I need to put campus on my baby happens all the time, right? There's also, I think, a deeper conversation that has to be had around the communities that are raising, um, the communities in which people are forced to raise young people in that are that are such at a lack of resources that crime is actually a way of life, that crime is actually an economic mobility, right? We've created these communities because of racism, because of classism. And so it's not necessarily just they want to commit crimes. It's that they're raised in communities that are victims of what the society has created and they act out what society created. Right. And mm. so it's, so, so I, I say that because it's much broader than just like mm-hmm. they woke up one day and wanted to like, you know, bash a car in. It's like bigger than that. Right. It's like, that's what they understand as a method for them to get stuff. That's what they understand as a method for them to have some type of economic change or to be a part of a community that is, that has so much crime in it, that that is what they're taught and they understand. So I just want to make like a interest, like a distinction yep. kind of, kind of around that. Um, and then all the things that you said, yes, I agree. You know, like I, like, you know, like, you know, I, you know, what's interesting is when I think about the Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse case, people are like really upset. I wasn't that upset. Right. And that's because like Rittenhouse is like a white blob to me. Right. It could have been Rittenhouse. It could have been like any other white blob that existed on a chair. Right. It didn't really matter. And I think what's, great is that because it was so public people care differently right but i see this every day right like i see black and brown bodies that are that uh, that have experienced so much harm right and then are put on trial for a crime that they committed and are looked upon as animals and are not asked to see are not even asked questions in court about who they are as humans right uh, you know written house like the conversation on him going to ASU came up all these things that humanized him right like that humanized yep. who he was came up both in the media and yep. also the court right when you watched the gymnastics that had to be played for him for to jumping over like when you watched the gymnastics that had to be played in the Ahmaud Arbery case right when you had to watch what happened for that case to have the verdict it did you didn't see that same thing on the Rittenhouse case right because the person that was over trying to you know that that like you had like literally what was happening was a circus in a lot of ways because that is what our criminal legal system has become in some ways because it's built on subjectivity right there are laws and technicalities and all these things but humans are the ones that are enacting these laws, right? And so it's all built in subjectivity. And so Rittenhouse, right, right, he got off because of a law, right? A law that was created and whatever reason it was created, but it was got off because of subjectivity, right? Because the people that were on the jury of that case, the judge, the committee, yep. all these people saw a different human in that chair, saw a pudgy faced white blob in that chair and they cared differently about him. I mean, there was conversation about his future, 
right? But when there's a black body in that chair, they don't commit their, they're, they shouldn't have committed their crime, right? Yep. They chose to get rid of their future, right? In the conversations you have. And so I think when you like, and so when I say like white blob, I'm actually not like talking about like the actual appearance. Yes, of no, I know. I'm talking I, yeah. about the idea of like, it doesn't matter, film the blank white. Um, or film yep. the big, or or even fill, you know, and race, uh, gender plays a part in that too. But fill in the blank doesn't matter. The outcomes are similar because we're dealing with subjectivity, um, and we're dealing with laws and policies, policies that on paper think people uh, talk about are gender neutral and race neutral, but in, in actuality, because humans are enacting them, they become, uh, you know, uh, they become enacted by the ideas of racism, and you see it play out, you know. And so back to your question, like, am I a cynic? No, I there is, you know, I I am a. Uh, I'm not that cynical in a lot of ways. Um, and you can't be some in some ways in the work that I do, right? Because if I because I would I would I would die, right? Yeah. Because I would yeah. be so burdened down by yep. what I see every day and the humans I speak to. And so whether it's reality or not reality, my response to you is yes, there is hope. And I say that because I've been, you know, I'm like older, but I'm not like super old, but like, you know, I'm the millennial, let's put it that way. <laughs> you know, but I've been doing this work for a lot of my my niece calls me a dusty, so there's that. <laughs> She actually she needs up she a, needs to go on punishment. Okay, she dressed up as a two thousands girl for Halloween. <laughs> I don't want. I don't like her. You know, yeah, like it was it was a whole thing. No. Uh, oh, are you a dusty as well? There you go. You're a dusty. Um, I don't like. I don't like her. <laughs> She's yeah. eleven, so there you go. Um, but my point though is that you know is there's but I've seen so much change even as much I, as I've been in this work. Right. Like I see like ban the box didn't exist when I started doing this work, which was like the which is, you know, in California and yep. nation actually now, which allow people not to ask questions around around felonies. Right. That didn't exist when I started this work. We've seen change. Right. When I look at talking about sexual violence in prisons, like impact justice runs that when I, when I started doing just work, that didn't exist. People weren't talking in a way that could change sexual violence inside of carceral facilities and that the federal government was going to pay for that. Like that didn't exist before that. Like conversations on black women being incarcerated and criminalized, that didn't exist, right? Talking about the school confinement pathways for black young people and girls, that didn't exist prior, you know, when when I first started doing this work. And so is there like mountains and valleys and rivers and oceans to crime cross and swim across absolutely but you can see change that's happening from both the federal state and local levels but that's only happening because people have continued to scream continue to knock down doors and continue to talk about what's right and what should happen right and i think and i don't see that changing and i think also because we've had such a public um display of um, a public display of racist acts, right? That people in black and brown communities, like we like when, when the Ahmaud Arbery happened, when George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, we like, it was like, it was really terrifying for us, but it was common. Like, you know, I think part of what I, I can tell you, like my response, like I remember when Eric Gardner happened, I, I tapped out. I tapped out on that day. That was the day I tapped out. Um, and I had an entire just like ball. I was at my desk yep. at work. And I yep. was just crying my face off, right? Because I tapped out at that moment. And I have these moments that I tap out. It happened during, Ahmaud, you know, when Ahmaud Arbery was was, was murdered. Um, I went on my 2.1, 2.11, I believe, mile run. And I cried the entire way, right? And I think that is because the folks that do this work have this, this, this stuff on their shoulders every day that we carry. And we have straight backs and long spines. And then sometimes it just gets heavy. And we have to be honest. We have to be honest about those moments. 
but we also have to be honest about the fact that we see so much change that's happening. The fact that we get, the fact that I get to have this conversation with you on a podcast that's going to be out to millions of people across race, talking about the atrocities in our justice system is progress within itself. Um, and I'm so appreciative to the folks that came before me, to the advocates on the ground and the policymakers that are working to change things at every level. Because without all of those things happening, we wouldn't be where we are and we will not get to where we're going without people continuing to open up their mouths and speak about uh, the dehumanization of black and brown bodies in our justice system. Aisha too, Yusuf, I really do hope that you will come back to Woke AF. I have enjoyed every single minute of this conversation. I think that the work that you're doing, uh, that Impact Justice is doing, is extraordinary um, and so needed. And, you know, and I really do appreciate the fact that you said, you know, and on the fact that, you know, you're not a cynic because you wouldn't be able to do this work if you were. Um, and I think that that is important because, you know, even those that while they were enslaved in shackles still persisted and dreamt of something that was bigger and different than the experience that they were currently having. And if they didn't, none of us would be here. And so, you know, to hold on to that hope, I think is extraordinarily necessary for us to keep forging ahead. And so for that, I appreciate you. Thank you so very much. And I hope that you will join us again. Oh, anytime. Please let me know. I really appreciate this, the conversations you bring uh, to, to the air. I really do. So thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you. That is it for me today, dear friends on Woke AF. As always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.